Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor and a child psychologist discuss sickle cell disease and its treatments. Hydroxyurea promotes the production of a different healthy type of hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, which uh, does not sickle and therefore prevents a lot of the damage of sickle cell disease. SU head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona talk about leadership. Everybody understands the bond of family and we try to take that bond and weave it through the entire fiber of everything we do. And the vascular surgeon goes over the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic outlet syndrome. A significant majority are treated with physical therapy. In fact, almost 80% to 90%. Surgery is an option, but it's usually a last option. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk to SU head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona about leadership. Then we'll hear from a vascular surgeon about thoracic outlet syndrome. But first, a doctor and child psychologist will discuss sickle cell disease and its treatments. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about a blood disorder called sickle cell disease. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Katherine Scott. She's the director of the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate, and she's here with one of her colleagues, child psychologist Jill Majeski. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thanks Thank for having us. Now, the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate sees patients from birth to age 21 with any form of sickle cell. Uh, what is sickle cell, and what are the forms of sickle cell that there are? I'll take that one. Uh, so sickle cell disease is an inherited disease of red blood cells. Um, <clears throat> it's caused by a genetic mutation in the DNA code to make hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the main protein inside red blood cells. And with that DNA change, it creates a differently shaped hemoglobin, uh, which promotes sickling of the red cell. That means that a polymer or a stick forms on the inside of the red cell that changes the whole red cell shape and those changed red cells stick together and block blood vessels and therefore cause uh, the symptoms of the disease. So since it's hereditary, do you find out that you have it at birth? Yes, uh, sickle cell disease is screened for on the newborn screen, which every state conducts and it is on the newborn screen of every state today. Um, so you find out at birth and then you come see me uh, uh, by about age two months and we start treatment then. And is it, does it uh, affect male and female the same? Equally. Equally. What are the signs and symptoms? Um, well, the first thing that most patients deal with with sickle cell uh, tends to be um, fevers from increased risk for infection. Uh, so we put kids on penicillin starting at age two months to prevent bacterial infections. Uh, the next symptom and sort of the hallmark of sickle cell as a chronic disease is chronic pain, and that can begin as early as four months of age, and so we have to treat pain in those individuals. Does having sickle cell predispose someone to getting other illnesses and infections? 
It definitely predisposes you to infection because the sickling of the red cells damages your spleen, and your spleen is required for proper prevention of infectious disease, including bacteria in your bloodstream, so they're at high risk for bacteria in their bloodstream. What about in terms of limiting a person's activity or even their lifespan? Well, the sickling of the red blood cells causes chronic organ damage and uh, also causes chronic pain. So it definitely limits the activities that kids can do due to the pain. Um, it also is a disease that requires a lot of medical attention, so frequent doctor visits, frequent tests, pictures of their organs, imaging, um, as well as, unfortunately, frequent hospitalizations, uh, which take them out of their day-to-day -day life. Since it, you said it's hereditary, if a person has sickle cell, does that mean if they have children, their children will have it? Um, so it, it means their children are at higher risk for it. So you need two copies of the genetic change in order to have the disease. If you only have one copy, that's called sickle cell trait, and that doesn't lead to the symptoms of the disease that we mentioned. So um, if both of your parents carry the change and they both pass it to you, then you have the disease. More commonly, in fact, really commonly, about 1 in 12 African Americans in this country carry the sickle cell trait. Um, and uh, if you carry that, you can pass it down to your child. Okay. Well, before we get into the treatments that are available for sickle cell, I wanted to get information about how the sickle cell program involves families. So, Jill, can you talk a little bit about why it's important for people with sickle cell to know and interact with others who have the disease? Sure. Um, well, I think it's really important to understand that sickle cell is not only a medical condition, but it's a biopsychosocial disease, meaning that there's the medical piece like Dr. Scott has spoken about, um, but then the psychosocial piece includes a lot as well, and that includes family. So things like um, parents, um, it's really challenging for parents to do all the things that they need to do um, to help their children when they have chronic pain, um, which a lot of our patients do have, um, as well as just needing to kind of do all of the medical pieces like come to the clinic for visits and come to the hospital. Um, and it requires really a lot of support amongst the family. Um, but we've also learned that these families really are hoping for a connection with other families to kind of relate and have that shared experience and support. Um, because sickle cell really does affect the entire family in multiple aspects. So you mentioned um, medical visits. Is it uh, how frequently do you usually see patients for this? Well, it depends on the patient um, and their disease type. Some patients come every three to six months, um, and some of them come more frequently. It could be weekly for a while, just depending on how they're doing. Um, and then there could be hospital stays yeah, as well? There are definitely hospital stays. Uh, recently, we've had quite a bit of uh, patients who have been admitted for um, complications due to sickle cell pain episodes, acute chest syndrome, yeah. So that must impact um, their schooling yes. if they're not able to go to school. Mm -hmm. um, and then the ripple effect on all the other family activities that they're mm -hmm. not part of, right? Yes, exactly. And we're really fortunate to have a very comprehensive multidisciplinary team um, in our sickle cell program. So all of the members of our team are able to kind of address all of these pieces to support not only the patient, but the entire family. Um, what are the members of the multidisciplinary team? 
so we have a lot. Uh, we have Dr. Scott and myself. Um, we also have... Uh, so physician, child psychologist. Yes. So we have a primary nurse for sickle cell. Um, we have a social worker, a child life specialist, um, an educational liaison, and a care manager who uh, works for Hillside um, Children's Health Homes, who's actually affiliated with us and comes to um, our clinic to see and work with our patients to make sure that they're receiving the care that they need from outside of the hospital, which is incredibly beneficial um, in making sure that these kids get what they need. Now, what about socializing, social activities and socializing? Um, so one of the things that we have done most recently um, in early November was our first Thriving Together event. Um, so we called it Thriving Together Starring Kids with Sickle Cell. Um, so this was a family event. Um, we wanted it to be inclusive for families, and it was completely created by patient and family feedback about what they would hope for if they could come together with their families and meet other families. Um, so for this particular event, we had uh, we held it in the Kinney Performance Center in the Children's Hospital, um, and we had a lot of activities. So we had dinner together, um, we had art activities, we had a photo booth, um, face painting, um, some education from Dr. Scott and myself, so about sickle cell um, and kind of treatments, prevention of problems. And then my piece is mostly focused on medical coping, so talking with kids and families about how they can really um, do their very best despite having a chronic illness um, and have the best quality of life possible. Um, so we actually had really great support from our whole multidisciplinary team that I mentioned, as well as the CARA Fund, uh, which is a local organization that supports kids with uh, serious illness. So a little bit, it sounds like a little bit of a support group kind of folded into uh, an activity. Yeah, okay. yeah, basically, yeah. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about sickle cell disease with Dr. Katherine Scott and child psychologist Jill Majeski. I want to talk about the current treatments for sickle cell. Is there any way to prevent it, Dr. Scott? Um, no, there's no prevention that's used in a standard way at this time. I do know there's really interesting research going into um, fetus uh, investigation, and as early as mid-gestation uh, in pregnancy, they are testing for sickle cell and trying to do gene editing at that point. Um, so that is far in the future to be a standard treatment, but it's very exciting that uh, everyone is looking and paying more attention to sickle cell and how to prevent and certainly treat it these days. What do transfusions do? Um, transfusion is one of the major treatments that we use for sickle cell disease. Transfusion is when we give red blood cells from an uh, individual without sickle cell and transfuse them into a patient with sickle cell. Those transfused red cells do not carry the sickle cell change and therefore can dilute out the damaging effects of the sickled red blood cells in the patient. Uh, we use that pretty frequently, either on a regular monthly basis or as needed, depending on the severity. What is uh, hydroxyurea? Hydroxyurea is one of the most incredible advances in sickle cell care in the last 30 years. Um, let's see, it was approved by the FDA, I think, in 1998 for the use uh, for sickle cell disease. And it is a once-daily medication that patients start taking uh, at the age of nine months. 
and uh, going forward indefinitely. And it promotes the production of a different healthy type of hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, which uh, does not sickle and therefore prevents a lot of the damage of sickle cell disease. So it doesn't do anything to the sickle cell, but it tries to introduce uh, cells that are not damaged. Yeah, it basically switches off production of the sickled hemoglobin and switches on production of a healthy hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin, and therefore you have less of the sickling taking place. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about cures. Are there any cures for sickle cell? Um, right now, there are two ways to cure it. Um, one is standard that anyone can get depending on their disease type and uh, the medical decisions made, um, and that's stem cell transplant. So if you have a donor that can give healthy stem cells that don't carry the sickle cell mutation, then uh, you can transplant them into the patient. Uh, and if it works and they survive, it is a cure. There's also an experimental technique uh, that's being looked at heavily right now called gene therapy, uh, and that is an effort to actually edit the genes or the genetic code in a sickle cell individual to prevent sickling. Now, how successful are those cures? Are they, do they work for everyone? If, you, if they find someone who can be a donor, does, does it necessarily work? Um, if the setup is in the... Um, is best, then it really does have a high success rate. Greater than 90% of individuals who have the treatment can be cured, but that's very dependent on how severe their disease was prior to transplant, who exactly is donating the donated stem cells. Ideally, it is a sibling of the patient that has a matched genetic code in different areas that we look at to be compatible. Um, but if you are a matched sibling donor, um, the and you're healthy going into transplant as the patient, um, it can be very successful. But uh, it's complicated and makes you immunocompromised for quite a while after that stem cell transplant occurs. Uh, and so it's not right for everyone. Well, I know you focus on pediatrics, but in November, the FDA approved a new drug for sickle cell disease for adults. Can you tell us what you know about it? Sure. Um, yeah, I think on November 25th, the FDA approved um, Veloxator, um, or Voxelator, and that, uh, from what I understand, is a medicine that's given once daily by mouth, and it actually uh, interferes with the formation of that polymer inside the red cells, um, like the stick inside the red cell that makes it into the sickled shape, um, and therefore helps to increase the hemoglobin levels and keep the red cell healthy for longer. Uh, we don't have a lot of use uh, experience with using it in patients currently because it just uh, is newly approved. It's approved for children starting at age 12 years and up, and then in adults as well. So I know that we're going to start to offer it in our clinic and the adult clinic uh, for sickle cell is as well in the near future. Is it something that a person would take every single day? Yes, once daily. lifetime? Yeah, similar to hydroxyurea, I believe, and you can use it in combination with hydroxyurea. Because they do different things. Exactly, yep, and this uh, research that went into the approval for this new medicine uh, had patients that were already on hydroxyurea and then ad added the um, voxelator. Are these medications, the hydroxyurea and the new one that... Boxillator, <laughs> are they um, life changing for people with sickle cell? Is it extending lifespan and is it reducing the pain? 
Well, um, that's an interesting question. Certainly, it's life-changing. Um, we have a lot of experience with hydroxyurea. That's a much older drug, um, and it absolutely improves quality of life by decreasing uh, the rate of all the sickle cell complications, pain, acute chest, stroke, hospitalization. Uh, we have less experience with the new medicine, uh, so we have yet to see um, outside of research how it's really going to impact patients, but there's a big hope that it will improve quality of life and extend life. That's been some good information. Thank you to Dr. Katherine Scott and child psychologist Jill Majeski from the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on HealthLink on Air, SU head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona talk about leadership. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Chief executive officers have a lot in common with coaches. Both plan strategies, make decisions, and instruct, motivate, and organize groups of people. They're leaders in their communities. Today, I'm talking about leadership with Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start by talking about your missions, because I want to ask you how, as leaders, you inspire individuals to commit the particular mission that you've, for your institution? Well, I'll start. Um, our mission is family. What we're trying to take is a bunch of young men from different backgrounds and bond them with a common bond, which, and sometimes that's very difficult. But everybody understands the bond of family, whether it's been extremely positive to, for them or maybe not so positive for them. And we try to take that bond and weave it through the entire fiber of everything we do. The end result, we hope, will make the young men better fathers, better sons, and better husbands, which is the goal that we have for all the individuals that are in our family. Now, you being the head football coach, I thought you would say something that, like your mission was to win football games, but you're focused more on developing these men into adults. You, you know, this, this, is, this is how I look about the winning part of it. I have to win so that I can stay on my mission of staying in front of these young men. If I don't win, then they don't give me the opportunity to stay in front of these young men. And I'm really serious about the mission and, and making sure that they are better fathers, better sons, and better husbands. And because of that, it keeps me focused on the other thing, which is winning. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the mission of the hospital in the community. So the hospital has a few missions. The main one is... Um, we have to care for the sick and keep people well, but um, we're a, we're a team. And so I was I was impressed with Coach Babers um, a while ago when he was interviewed and asked about the performance of an individual. And he said, "I don't I don't make comments on performance of individuals because we're a family, we're a team. And if one person is not having a good game, the whole team's not having a good game." I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing mm -hmm. for you, but. It's the same thing at our hospital. I mean, I'll get letters that such and such a nurse was not good or such and such a doctor was not bad. That's, that's a fault of our system, of our team. And so we're not going to call out individuals unless their behavior is egregious. Um, 
And so our mission is to uh, demonstrate leadership in this community in keeping people well and when they do become sick, trying to make the best of the situation so they get better. Well, each of you, as part of your role as leaders, you're creating an experience both for the uh, people that you coach and lead, but also for the people that you serve, the fans and the patients. So how do you go about creating an experience that will be positive for both? How do you serve both audiences? I think it's really important to try to find a way to get the community or the student body and the administration to embrace what you're doing. And uh, there's a lot of ways that we could do our job. And when I say our job off the football field, obviously that's academics and, and making sure socially that these guys are doing the right things. But on the football field, we choose to do it a certain style. And uh, our style on special teams is to be super uh, aggressive. Our style on defense is to be very disciplined, although sometimes that doesn't show through. Our style offensively is to not to huddle and to do it as fast as possible to allow the the to allow the people who are enjoying the game to see something different than they, than they've seen before and maybe that because it is different they'll bring their sons and their daughters and and their neighbors to come watch because I think even though you're trying to win a football game you can also make it entertaining because entertainment dollars are are precious where they can come and enjoy something in the community, which is the uh, local football team. So we have, um, you know, you think about it, we have uh, the idea that patients come first, and they're usually um, in pain when they come to a hospital, at least, not into our outreach clinics where they're maybe maintaining their health. And I, I often say we want to put the hospitality back in the hospital. So we're caring for people who are in extreme have extreme anxiety and their families are anxious too. So we have to take patients first and try to meet their needs. And then sometimes we even have to think about patients second and our employees first. And if our employees are happy and feeling valued and trusted, then they relate that to the patients that they're caring for. Let me ask you what you seek to achieve as a leader. Um, Coach Babers, where do you get your inspiration? You know, there's no doubt that I have a spiritual side, but, you know, my dad was military. I was raised a uh, military brat, military bases all across the country, uh, 60s and 70s, and, and saw a lot of stuff that was uh, unique to those times. And uh, I always, I've, I've been a strong believer that you can learn something from something extremely positive, and you can learn something from something extremely negative. You take the positive out of the positive, and you... Obviously, you put the shield up on the negative, but you still watch, and you can learn from that. And I think that those experiences are some of the things that, some of the things that you want to share with the members of our family, and some of the things that you want to tell them about and keep them shielded from. But uh, but you still let them know that these things happen. And so Dr. It's, it's interesting that Coach Babers mentioned his dad. So my dad was a football coach, and um, I had great inspiration from him and saw how he managed a team and people have said to me you manage the hospital like a coach manages a team I feel coaches really connect in with the emotional piece of individuals and and a lot of decisions uh, that are made in a hospital because it's a high intensity uh, uh, an emotional uh, institution and arena um, 
it's it's important for a leader to connect to that emotional part of an individual and and that creates a better team so it, every uh, person that's been an inspiration to me ha has largely been a coach um, and I feel like people relate better when they feel part of a team and they don't want to let their team down that's one of the most embarrassing things for an individual is not to screw up but is to let let their teammate down you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate University Hospital CEO, Dr. Bob Corona, and Syracuse University head football coach, Dino Babers, and we're talking about leadership. I want to ask both of you if you feel the weight of leading a big institution that each of you are leading um, that has a lot of influence in the community. Do you? We're going to switch the order now. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Corona, you get to go first. Yeah, I... I... You know, I talked about this earlier um, I don't think I quite have the weight that coach Babers does because so many people are just crazy about our football team I think maybe in certain areas where people see uh, me in the healthcare arena they may you know be looking at what I do and what I say so I'm conscious of that um, I'm not bothered at all in restaurants or you know in the mall where I'm sure you are but um, I watch what I say more carefully now because I know it can hurt people's feelings if I'm joking and if they don't think it's funny. I remember I, I, I had a button on once that said, uh, we have always done it this way, and I put a, uh, you know, a, a red cross on it. And I didn't realize it offended people that said, well, what do you mean what I've been doing for the last 30 years has been wrong? And the intent was not to say that. The intent was that we're going to try to improve things. So I would say that but I, I don't feel it's a tremendous I don't feel it's a tremendous burden I think it's um, to have this kind of authority and power I think it reveals your true self and uh, you you really need to be respectful of what you do with that kind of authority my favorite word in the dictionary is faith my second favorite word is humble my third word is meek and those three words have a lot of meaning for me I I truly enjoy people which is a positive and a negative. I, people can stop me, and I, if I have the time, I will stop and give them the time. If I don't have the time, I'll stop anyway and then let them know that I really have no time, that I have to apologize and keep moving. So even though I, I have a lot of interaction with a lot of people, uh, it's really my nature. So it's, it's not as uh, much as a burden as some people might think it is. Now, I, my stress comes from how many people I have, in a sense, working for me or is tied to what I do, and, and being successful allows them to provide for their families. And that's where my stress comes from. And it, it's almost to say this, my family's going to get mad. I don't even think about my family. I think about others' people's families and, and being successful so they can continue and stay and kids don't change high schools and the stadium stays packed so no one gets laid off because uh, you know there's not enough people attending football games and and it's things like that that really does go to bed with me it's a it's a burden that I carry and uh, it's really important for me to make sure that I do well for them that's a lot to carry and uh, I mean keeping a hospital operating and, and doing well, that's a lot of weight to carry. I want to ask you how you deal with 
stress? And how do you yourselves prevent burnout from that? I, I get up early and um, I try to do a little bit of meditation and praying. And then I have to exercise. My wife will tell you, are, she goes, are you going downstairs to work out? Because she wants to make sure I burn off that steam. And I get my workout in in the morning. Um, I bring my dogs down with me when I work out. And so it's kind of neat. I have my dogs and, and my workout. And then um, I listen to music. Uh, and that, that's probably the primary way. And then before I go to bed, I try to pray a little bit, uh, meditate a little bit, and then, uh, and then my monkey brain starts going crazy. And it's really just hard to calm that down. I mean, thoughts are running through my head. And people will tell me that, um, well, you texted me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, I, I, I have to do that to kind of let it off, and then I can fall back to sleep. I cannot believe how similar we are. This is absolutely amazing. I, uh, I'm going to start with the night part. I, I try really hard to be in bed by 9.30. That doesn't mean I'm going to be asleep by 9.30. But I'm literally, if it's 9.26, 9.27 military style, I am moving towards the bedroom if I'm not there to be in bed by 9.30. Now, I'll fall asleep when I fall asleep because I have a lot of things going on in my head. I don't really sleep that well. I can average somewhere between two and a half and six and a half hours a night. And when I wake up, I've got all kinds of stuff going on in my head. And my team realizes that I will send them messages <laughs> in the middle of the morning because if I... If I try to hold on to it, I might lose it. You can say, oh, you can write it down. Well, you know, I'm going to send them a message. And what I tell them is, turn your phones off. You know I'm going to get messages from you. Turn it off. I'm going to send them to you. And when you wake up, it's going to be a fresh list of things that we have to get done that day. And this is numerous people. This is not just one person. But uh, when I do get up or when I finally decide I'm going to leave the bed, I'm going to get up. I'm going to, I'm going to do some spiritual reading by myself, uh, use some time to reflect, pray. And now here's another thing. If it's really early enough, which it normally is, there's nothing cooler to me than watching a sunrise or watching, just watching it, it's starting to break, dawn is starting to break, and, and just taking that in. And there's, I've got a picture, I gotta send you a picture, remind me to send you a picture. I've got a picture out of my backyard that happened about three or four months ago that is absolutely unbelievable. And just being thankful that you're starting a new day and, and stopping to smell the roses a little bit before you put in a full day's work. And uh, and I just like you, I, I can go anywhere from 6, 7 in the morning to 9, 10, 11 at night if you're still working. I say I try to get to bed at 9.30, but there's, sometimes you're just working past that time. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any tricks that you use to keep yourself focused on the job? Coach Babers, I imagine, you know, you on the sidelines, how do you block stuff out that you don't need at the moment? I really look at football as a chess game. That's, that's what I, I play checkers. We all play checkers, but, you know, some people play chess. But every day I go to practice, my job is to make sure that the knight knows how to move like a knight and the bishop knows how to move like a bishop and the pawn knows how to move like a pawn. And I'm really focused 
on making sure that all members of the family knows their jobs. And if all those pieces on the chessboard know how they're supposed to move, then when you go to the game on Saturday, you can play chess. But if you get one of them that doesn't know they're supposed to move in an L, two spaces, and then one, or that as a bishop, they're not supposed to go across as a diagonal, or a pawn that can't take that piece because it's not at the right angle, then you start to have chaos. And to me, the clarity of a really good football game starts at practice. And that practice starts not in November, October, September, August. It starts in February and March and April and the summer. And that's what gets me going. That's what's really exciting to me is the preparation. Good advice. Dr. Corona? I, I, uh, I learned something uh, when I was 19. Um, I really wanted to learn to fly. So um, I started to uh, take lessons and learn to fly. And um, at about seven hours in the air, the instructor asked me to pull the plane over and said, I'm, I'm getting out. You're ready. And I said, I'm not ready. And this is the way they do it. I guess they don't tell you because you'd be so anxious. And this is, you're going to solo. And so I can remember taking that little single engine plane, taking off and realizing that I'm in the air now and I'm the only one that's going to get myself on the ground alive. And that made me kind of focus on having a, a dashboard or a cockpit and just be laser-like and understanding your navigation system, your altitude, your speed, your airspeed, and so on. And I've kind of carried that into healthcare where I use checklists and kind of a dashboard for what I do on a day-to-day -day so I can check all the parameters. We've created these these dashboards. I have our information technology, and if you come over to the uh, administrative suite, we have a live dashboard of who's in the emergency room, how many patients are waiting for beds, what's going on in the OR, our quality measures, and it's live. It's dynamic. And uh, we can anticipate certain things. We can infer certain things from the data. And then I always try to use checklists because the mind is not that good at remembering detail, right? So I... I use my phone checklist and and uh that's that's what keeps me focused because i'm like coach here uh you know i call it a monkey brain my brain's like flying all over the place all the time exactly the same well very good advice thank you both thank you to dr robert corona the ceo of upstate university hospital and to dino babers the head football coach at syracuse university i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air HealthLink on Air takes a look at thoracic outlet syndrome next. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The thorax, or chest, contains organs including the heart and lungs, as well as muscles, nerves, blood vessels, and ribs. There's a ring formed by the top rib just below the collarbone called the thoracic outlet, 
When nerves or blood vessels are compressed by this rib or the collarbone or neck muscles, various disorders can occur. This group of disorders is called thoracic outlet syndrome. Here to talk about the causes and treatments of thoracic outlet syndrome is Dr. Anthony Figali, Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Department of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Figali. Thank Thanks you for, for having here. me. First, could you give an overview of what thoracic outlet syndrome is? Sure, that was a pretty good overall understanding of what the general idea of it is. Uh, but thoracic outlet is really one of three entities. Uh, you have what is called neurogenic, which is compression of the nerves in that space. Uh, two, venous, which is compression of the subclavian vein uh, that comes off the heart in that space. And three, the most rare, which is arterial, which is compression of that subclavian artery. Uh, overall, about 90% of the patients I see in and around the country is related to neurogenic, which is a nerve compression of the brachial plexus. Those are the nerves that come off the back of the head, down the arm, into the shoulder. Uh, the second most common is venous. It's about 10%. In fact, I see about one of these a week, uh, roughly, that come in acutely through the hospital. And then the rarest is arterial, which is really less than 1%. Which one is the most dangerous? The most dangerous is arterial. Um, why that is, is the artery gets compressed in that tight space. And that tight space is either between a first rib, which we all have, or some of us are born with an extra rib called a cervical rib. Uh, and that tight space is where the vessels cross between some muscles. We call those the scalene muscles. And when the artery gets compressed, it can become acutely blocked and clawed off. And that relates to ischemia or lack of blood flow to the hand and that's an emergency. If that's not fixed emergently, you have the risk of losing your arm. Well, let's talk about symptoms. How would somebody know that they have this condition? Sure, so the majority of the patients have what is known as the neurogenic type, which is related to nerve compression. Um, a lot of things can cause pain in the neck, pain in the shoulder, uh, and this is something that's usually misdiagnosed or rarely you know, identified until it's later on down a patient's treatment plan of years. Um, but a majority of the patients with the neurogenic nerve compression develop tingling of the hands or the arm. We call that paresthesia. Uh, they can develop weakness of some of the muscles, and eventually they can develop what we call atrophy of the muscles, which is a loss of that muscle mass. Uh, and those are the most common symptoms I see related to the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet. So when you say loss of muscle mass, is that in the shoulders or the arms? Sure. Or? So it's in the combination of the shoulder. Um, they can also use muscle strength in the hand, and that's from the chronic compression of the nerves. Um, but they'll come and they'll usually complain of chronic radiating weakness, pain, and tingling down their arm, their shoulder, their back, and sometimes up and towards the chest. So it sounds like this could end up being debilitating for it, a person. Yes, it very well can be. And in fact, um, we see this quite frequently in young individuals, uh, specifically athletes. Uh, I trained in Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson University, and I worked with a world-renowned surgeon who treats this named Paul DiMuzio, Dr. DiMuzio. And so during my time there, he took care of many of the professional athletes in the area, uh, we would see this from baseball players to pitchers to NFL players to basketball players. And a lot of it is from overuse of this space, from overdeveloping muscles related to this space. Or it can be related to a trauma such as a car accident or an injury. Uh, and that injury can really uh, injure the nerves that come across this tight space. Well, you mentioned that it uh, sometimes gets misdiagnosed. How do you go about diagnosing it? That's a great question. So it depends on the form. Uh, the arterial compression is usually diagnosed acutely because you have no blood flow to the hand, and that's an emergency. 
the venous, which I see quite frequently, in fact, I saw on this past weekend, they usually come in with an acute swelling of their whole arm all the way down to the fingertips. Uh, in particular, a lot of the patients I have are young, uh, between the ages of 20 to 40. Uh, majority of them are fairly athletic. Uh, they do activities such as cycling, lifting weights. Uh, so they overdevelop these muscles that compress that space between the rib uh, and the uh, muscle. And so those are the ones that present acutely with swelling of the arm. And that's a step process of treatment. You first have to get rid of the clot that's developed. And then once that clot resolves, then you have to take out the inciting factor that caused that, which we can talk more about later. Uh, and then the third, which is the neurogenic, it's a difficult diagnosis. A lot of the times the patients I do get seen are patients who have seen orthopedic surgery for neck pain, shoulder pain, and they do get sent to me. And the diagnosis is really a diagnosis of exclusion and clinical exam. Uh, they usually start off by first getting an x-ray to see if they have an extra rib uh, that could be present that's causing this compression. Because you wouldn't necessarily know you have that. You would not know. Okay. No, exactly. And a majority don't, but they still have this disease. And then the next thing they would do usually is um, a very thorough clinical exam. There's certain maneuvers I look at in the shoulder and the arm to see if there is compression. Uh, and then they can do studies such as EMG, which is electrical uh, nerve conduction studies to see how good the nerve conduction is to the hand. Uh, and then eventually other tests that can be done include a CAT scan or an MRI. And an MRI is pretty diagnostic in showing that compression on that brachial plexus or that nerve plexus. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Anthony Fagali, an assistant professor of surgery in the Department of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Upstate, about thoracic outlet syndrome. So let's talk about how it's treated. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a surgeon, so you, you do surgery, um, but there's other things that you might do before then, right? That's a great question. Exactly. As a surgeon, you know, you, you, you see yourself as a hammer and everything's a nail, but it's really not always the best uh, modality to take care of this. In fact, a majority of the patients that have what is the neurogenic form or the nerve compression of this thoracic outlet, a uh, significant majority are treated with physical therapy. In fact, almost 80% to 90%. And what physical therapy does, and it takes months of time, is they teach you how to stretch those muscles along this plexus, how to improve your posture that can affect this. And there are certain other modalities such as nerve injections or blocks that they can inject into that space to help relieve that compression. Of the ones in neurogenic that do not resolve with uh, aggressive physical therapy, surgery is an option, but it's usually a last option. And which, for that particular option, what I do is I make an incision right, right above the clavicle. It's a few centimeters in length. And I the, de- and the clavicle is the shoulder? The clavicle is a shoulder bone that comes off the chest. And so it's more up towards the neck. And that incision, what it allows me to do is I take out the muscle that's causing some of that compression. It's called the anterior scaling. And I also take out this other muscle called the middle scaling. And between those muscles is compressed are the nerves. And then what I do is I free up those nerves. We call that neurolysis, where I take off that scar tissue along those nerves that develop over time from that severe compression. And then, pending how bad that compression is, the majority of the time I also take out that rib, that extra rib or that first rib that develops that compression. And with that, even with the operation, patients still have to go through some form of physical therapy to help really stretch that area and to really allow their nerves to, to relax and free up. In relation to the venous type, which is the vein that gets compressed, that's a different step modality. A majority of those patients come to me fairly acutely, uh, usually with swelling of the extremity, either left or right arm. And for those patients, I take them and I do an endovascular approach, meaning 
I put a wire and catheter through a vein and I put clot busting medication and it sometimes takes a couple days to dissolve all that clot that's developed. The clots develop because that vein is compressed in that tight space and when the vein gets compressed you get a DVT which is a deep vein thrombosis. As that clot completely dissolves, the patient usually goes home for a couple weeks with a blood thinner. I bring them back and we schedule them for surgery. And what that surgery is, is an incision below that collarbone, uh, which is the clavicle. And I take out, again, some of that muscle that's attached to that area. And I take out that first rib. And I also free up the vein at the same time. Uh, and those patients do very well. Um, they can go back to their regular activities. But it is a few-month recovery until they have their full ability to lift weights and exercise again. And you, then our, you mentioned that you remove some of the muscle. Correct. Um, does that, like how much muscle, and does it sure. grow back? Or? So this is very small muscles. Uh, these are called the subclavius muscle. This is called the scalene muscle. These are muscles that don't have any long-term effect on your ability to exercise, be athletic. In fact, a lot of these sports athletes, there's been mixed martial arts fighters that have had this operation before, professional baseball pitchers have had this operation before, and still with that muscle and that rib removed, they can go back to their full uh, level of activity. Okay. And I'm going to back you up just a little bit on the physical therapy, um, which can be helpful for some people. Does that last forever? If you go to PT and get this sort of corrected, are you always going to have to stay in PT? That's a great question. Um, With physical therapy, it's something that is a lifelong commitment. Um, They will teach you ways to strengthen the muscles around it, to relax those muscles causing the compression. And it's some exercise. Once you learn how to do it, uh, as a patient, that's something you can continue with your life. Um, and it's it's a very effective way of treating the nerve compression. But then if you end up having the surgery, is that a lifelong fix? That's a good question, too. So with the surgery, a majority do see an excellent result and benefit. There is a small minority that don't, and they still need the physical therapy lifelong for it. Um, but despite the surgery, even if you take off that compression, Majority of the time, it is a lifelong fix, but they still need some form of physical therapy here and there to keep that space widely open. Is there anything that people can do to avoid getting this condition, particularly if you're, like you've mentioned, athletes? Mm -hmm. Is Is there something that athletes are doing wrong that they should stop doing? You know, it's difficult as an athlete to tell them how to control it. Um, The main thing is you have to keep a a good posture. Um, It's important to stretch that plexus or that space right above the clavicle and neck and you can do certain exercises. There are videos online you can watch to help show that. Uh, Professional athletes, a lot of them develop an overuse of the muscle and as they overuse the muscle it develops what we call hypertrophy. It gets thicker and larger. As the muscles get thicker and larger in that area, um, they compress more of that normal anatomical space and so you know for you and I our space is fairly open we don't really have those symptoms but if you and I were to start and go lifting weights a lot or becoming a professional baseball player overusing that arm throwing pitches you can develop um, thoracic outlet syndrome. Do you see more men or women with this condition? Majority are women. Um, They have a smaller anatomical space than men and so we do see it a lot more in women. Um, the neurogenic is the most common form. You would see more so of women, um, but it, it is in both sexes. And the majority of the patients are between the ages of 20 to 40. Um, so it's usually young individuals. How do you advise someone to prepare if they're looking at surgery because mm-hmm. they've tried maybe PT or, or other things to try to live with this, but you know surgery is inevitable. How do you tell them to prepare for it? What's the best way to 
come into it? Sure. So in regards to the neurogenic or the nerve compression, the operation takes about an hour and a half, two hours to do. It is under general anesthesia. Um, it does have its risk as any operation. Uh, it is related to the compression of those nerves that come down the arm. So those nerves can be injured in fixing this decompression. Um, it's a low likelihood, but that's always something that it has to be aware of. Um, there's also, because of this anatomy, it's a very high real estate area in the body. So there are certain things that can cause nerves that allow the diaphragm to open up, that allow for your arm to move, that are very important that we don't injure during this operation. That's the main, the main risk. Uh, there's also something called the thoracic duct, <clears throat> which comes along this, and this is what drains all the lymphatic fluid in the body. And that duct can be injured in this operation, which will cause what we call a lymph leak. You'll drain a lot of serous fluid, and that's a bit of time to heal up. But the majority of patients um, do very well from the operation. It's about two hours. They usually go home within 24 to 48 hours after the operation. Um, the main thing is they cannot do any significant heavy lifting for the first few months to allow everything to heal well. And within a couple weeks, once the incision has healed well and they've recovered well from the operation, then they start to work slowly with physical therapy. And usually it's the same physical therapist they were working with prior to surgery uh, that was helping treat them before. And it could be, you said, several months before you're kind of back to normal? Correct. It, it takes a few months, several months, to allow everything to fully heal and allow the scar tissue not to return. Um, so it is a, it's a slow process, but by the time it's healed and the patients do well, um, they're very satisfied with it. Do you ever see this condition in both arms at the same time? I get that question quite a bit. It's rare to see it in both arms. I would say less than 10%. I have, um, but it's not the norm. Uh, majority of the time, it's usually unilateral. So if somebody has numbness and tingling in both arms, it's probably not thoracic outlet. It can be, but most likely no, and it depends. There's, other, there's a lot of other pathologies that cause this, such as the most common is cervical compression or compression of the spine. Um, a lot of people have degeneration with age, with time, and sometimes with accidents that causes compression of the spine. And those nerves cross through the spine. And so the majority of those patients, that's what they have. It's not a true thoracic outlet. Um, and I do see a significant portion that do come to me with this. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Anthony Fagali, Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Department of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Claudia Redder teaches at California State University at Channel Islands. Her poem, Brain Fog, attests to the hard work rehabilitation takes as a patient strains to return to her former state. Between each read sentence, I rest. I stare at my Ph.D. dissertation then copy the complex syntax of one sentence, then substitute words. I imitate my former self, mirror the text with my new handwriting, sloppy as a 10-year-old scrawl. I think about Elizabeth Bishop's toucan because I could use uncomplicated mirth and not think about the leak in the roof which cannot be located or the sieve of my brain through which words fall like tufts of feathers drifting off the planet. Life collapses to one room, surrounded by books I love that I can no longer read, my own leaning tower of Pisa. 
Yet, having left the East Coast years ago, I can still summon the red sumac when driving north on I-95, a mark of transition between seasons and counties, the red berry talisman letting us know we are nearer our goal. It still grows on that bit of highway, and I am still driving by, hoping for a glimpse of this berry, hungry for something I can name. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next week on HealthLink on Air, suicide prevention efforts. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.